Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that we've picked him up from the police station after he chained himself to a a military fence, it's John McMahon. (laughs) It was a great time. Um, My civil rights were extremely violated, or at least that's what Paige thinks. (laughs) Also, though, Danielle joining us on the other line. He was just reading the Rolling Stone in the bookstore, and now he's on a podcast with us. It's John Keller. John, welcome to Not Quite Great Books. (laughs) Thrill of a lifetime being back. Are you, you, I feel like if I were you, I would be incredibly thrilled to get like a Lev Gorn reference in my intro. Come on. That was special for you. Our like... I am. We are the three biggest Lev Gorn fans (laughs) that exist in the world. And I, I do that. I, you know what it is? John's been very busy on sabbatical. He's like in Palm Springs. There's daiquiris. There's water aerobics. And, you know, here he is. He took some time. And we do appreciate that to, to join us on the podcast. Yeah. Like, okay, the rest of my day is spent, you know, organizing Lev Gorn events, of course. <laughs> so, you know, right now I'm just kind of focusing on myself for a little while. But Lev is doing fine. Later in the show, I have an update on Lev and we can get to that, oh which I didn't God. tell you about. But, you know, wow. um, that's a yeah. spoiler even to Danielle and I. Like, yeah, this is not drop that uh, yeah. This is it's not, oh. it's not that great, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Something. We're thrilled already. Okay. Oh, my gosh. So, we're going <laughs> to somewhere in these next several hours who knows learn some new things about love gore and as we discuss american season two episode 13 the finale of season two titled echo directed by daniel sackheim and written by joel fields and joe weisberg and danielle has an imdb summary for us Yes, the summary for season two, episode 13, is that Nina finds that her future is in Stan's hands. Meanwhile, Paige and Henry are moved to safety as their parents attempt to complete their assignment. I hear a lot of skepticism there, Danielle. (laughs) They are literally moved into the lion's mouth. Like, (laughs) let's go to upstate New York where Alaric is just running about... Yeah, we're in we're in my neck of the woods, supposedly, uh, in this episode in safety by the up in the Adirondacks, but I don't know about that. So I think this episode, there's way too much happening. So much. I think we're gonna kinda walk through piece by piece in this episode to see how everything leads together. And yeah. thus, John, we'd like to start by hearing about your reaction to the cold open to this episode where we get the entire end of the life of one Fred. Oh, it was really sad. I mean, who doesn't love Fred? You know what I mean? He's just like adorable, you know, a little spy there, you know? He's, uh, he's who you or I or Danielle would be if we were spies, yeah, right? Right, right, right. That's the I would have been dead right? five episodes ago. I was right. just saying, but. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny because, like I said, in that movie about the founding of McDonald's, like, you know, Michael Keaton's character, Roy Kroc, steals McDonald's from that guy. And he's just, he looks the same, basically. And so yeah. that's the same. And he's like, he's definitely a character actor. That, yeah, you know John, I mean? John Carroll Lynch. Yeah. I don't know if we've actually shouted out yeah. by name, the actor um, here. So it's very sad. You know, they try, uh, they try to say, did they really try to save him or they just try to pick up the shoes, really? That's no. one thing that's unclear to me. They, they don't, don't try, try to save, to save him. him. Yeah. They tell him they're going to try to save him. Yeah. They know they're not going to, right? And then they look at each other and it's like at that moment when when Philip and Elizabeth are like look at each other after he's bleeding out or whatever Fred says to Philip on the yeah. phone. I was like there's no chance that these two are getting anywhere near that. And then they hear on the radio that he's like a code gray, right? So he's he's dead. 
Yeah, and before that, it was like, okay, every car anywhere within 20 miles storm this phone booth, right? It's <laughs> like, right, they're not going to go there, right? They're going to go to the drop and pick up the shoes in the bag, right? Yeah. I will say for Fred, he gets to die in what for him is a moment of glory. Like, there's a lot of pride in what he says when he calls Philip and Elizabeth from the payphone. Like, even though he yeah. got shot, even though, like, he had to, yeah. like, run away or whatever, he's like genuinely thrilled that he completed this mission, like ditched the shoes in the bag on the dumpster and all of that. And then it's like when he removes his hand from his stomach and sees how much he's bleeding, that's when like that pride curdles into the like despair that he's assuming he's about to die. And like he had been puffed up by as continuing to be puffed up by Philip and Elizabeth, even beforehand, like in the car, he gets a, you are you ready? You look ready. Yeah. Right. Well, and so I just want to call out two pieces of this. One, I fully agree that like he is like swelling with pride that he's accomplished this thing that he was worried about, right? That he was worried whether or not he could do. Great. How did he get the shoes off while having been (laughs) shot? It's a legitimate continuity question. Okay. I just, I, you know what? We can, we can put it aside, but I just, I need, I literally was like, this, this dude got to this phone booth. Great. Philip and Elizabeth hear on the radio that it's basically that it's Fred before, like the police radio that it's Fred before they hear from him. And, but yet he has time to like take off shoes, put them in a, a Ziploc bag and like find the dumpster. <laughs> like guys, there's a piece of this that feels unbelievable make make two lefts two rights and then put it put in a dumpster and then then go back to the phone booth to make the call while he's bleeding out yeah (laughs) which i guess like that's how we get to the bleeding out so quickly because but like there should be blood all over like the dumpster there should be blood on those shoes like what's happening here and it's true i mean the americans is I think has very few continuity issues and like this might be one of them. It doesn't, it didn't fully take me out of it, but I, I couldn't, Mm. I couldn't leave it alone. (laughs) I mean, one thing that happens while they're waiting for Fred is that both Elizabeth and Philip give memories of growing up in the USSR, right? So for Elizabeth, it's her mother had diphtheria and like every day after school, Elizabeth would take care of her for 10 months And Philip tells the story of like getting beat up by gangs in Tobolsk after the end of the war. And at one point he says he just decided that's it. And like, that's where the story leaves off. And it's interesting to me that the show decided to have them give these memories while they're waiting to see what happened with Fred. Wait, so did did, did he stop telling that story because he stopped picking up the milk for his family or or because he kicked the shit out of those people that were finally stood up to them and kicked their asses? No no comment. Which is it? I think you're supposed to think that it's the the latter, (laughs) that like he just like started to kick the shit out of them as a seven-year-old and that like is the link to being a KGB agent. Right. When it's more likely they were like, all right, guys, no more milk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so great about milk anyway. (laughs) A great call. Any thoughts, though, on what it is about Fred that prompts or their worry for Fred that prompts these particular sad reminiscences by Philip and Elizabeth? I feel like part of it is like the kind of like 
sadness or like lonerness of of Fred that yeah. that brings us up because I think that that's something that they each like understand and connect to, right? Like the sort of being alone and having to survive that they see in Fred that I think they do respect in him. Yeah, it's also a loss of innocence, you know, a certain way. And they're all telling stories about their own loss of innocence when mm-hmm. they're little somehow, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then, you know, we're getting there with Paige and it's like sort of a kind of, you know, there's a bleak, ter- there's a bleak sort of turn that the show seems like it's beginning to, to take. It's very subtly uh, presented, you know, with these little stories like this guy, you know? I think this is like where it's not exactly where we left off with Claudia and we'll come to Claudia again in a, in a little bit, but it's not exactly where we left off with Claudia earlier on in, in this season or, or rather in the last season, but there was this moment where they say to Philip and I believe Claudia says to Philip and Elizabeth, like things are going to get more challenging. Things are going to get darker. Like, like the missions are going to get harder, like a version of that conversation. And I sort of Keller, I wonder if like, Mm-hmm. that is a helpful lens through which to view the like this descent into darkness which i think you're rightly like putting your finger on well i think it's becoming more and more morally complex for each of the characters and they're like you know they went they begin this very from this very youthful rigid commitment to the cause and they're confronted with all these kind of um complicating factors personal political right uh that make it harder and harder to do the things they have to do i think right and they it's interesting, like sometimes they're very, very upset when there's there's a collateral damage happens to somebody they're working with. And sometimes they're like, you know, it's just the way it is. You know, it's part of the business. It's cost doing business. Someone like Fred is going to get killed or something like that. And Other this times is very upset. And this is like intercut. So one of the things I really enjoyed about this open is that once it's known, once Fred calls them, at the payphone, of course, they're like about to drive away and the payphone rings and Philip hops out of the car or whatever. And then once they drive away, it actually kicks off this montage that's cutting back and forth between Paige and the church group protesting the Air, the Air Force Base at the same time that Philip and Elizabeth are like driving around going to try to beat the police to pick up the shoes. And so if there's some sort of loss of innocence dynamic that's happening here, that would be one of the ways in which that particular montage makes sense. Paige is, you know, at her first protest, like sees protesters being arrested for the first time. You know, now she's an expert in civil disobedience, like all of these sorts of things. Um, At the same time that like Philip and Elizabeth were talking about losses of innocence in their childhood to the point that you two were just discussing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if this is I I'm I fully agree with that. I wonder if this is sort of a good opportunity to like shift to thinking about Paige a little bit more. Let's because do it. I think one way to think about it is like a certain kind of loss of innocence, but also like we've talked a lot about Paige this season. Um there's been a lot of Paige this season. Um but I'm not sure we've always talked about Paige on her own terms. So maybe that this is the chance for us to do that. My general thing with Paige is like Paige knows that something's up but she doesn't know what is up right like that that's the that that's the whole thing here by the way why do they go to upstate New York they live in Maryland it seems like a really like when they said upstate of course I assume being a New Yorker that means upstate New York but I thought what do they mean like upstate Maryland Virginia like what but it is New York right they go this to like Poughkeepsie very Poughkeepsie long drive <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking that they, in the middle of the night. They go at least to the Catskills, if not 
That's far. fucking far, man. That's far. I know. They're just I taking know. in some Jewish comedy shows, just like <laughs> great. They're like, they're like there's, there's great tumblers at this place. It's fantastic. <laughs> they really were craving that schmaltz. Yeah, the, the, the borscht cannot be beat. Let me tell you, man. This cancellation we had just it was like man. Philip, Elizabeth, and the borscht belt. <laughs> Oh my I'm god! Sorry, what, 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 I, 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 I derailed the the actual substantive question. Really, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know what it was. I just know that I derailed it. This is the tiny bit of what Elizabeth says at the end that's correct. Is like Paige is constantly seeking out this purpose in her life. Yeah. She's missing this purpose in her life. And Paige even you know talks about how like this was amazing. We were peaceful. Um, yeah, you know that. Jesus made a sacrifice and like, it's necessary for people to make, you know, put their bodies on the line for the greater good. And like, that's what church means to her and all these sorts of things. So Danielle, to your point about it being Paige presenting herself more explicitly, like in her own self-definition, yeah, that happens. Of course, like she's also a 14 year old, like white quasi bougie teenager class status is complicated when she's the children of Soviet agents, but like has lived a fairly bourgeois life and that, she, you know, like went to one protest and now she is the expert on civil disobedience <laughs> at the same time, right? It's called civil disobedience, dad, right? Like she well, says her, to her, her parents are being so, just so disrespectful of her. Yes, I know. No, it's, it's, that's know, the, that's right? the irony, right? Is that like, here you have these two Soviets who have to like play conservative, upper middle class, like stuffy white parents to be like, oh, well, we know about civil disobedience and, like, it's not that big a deal or, you know, whatever. Well, the question is, are they burying themselves in the park a little bit here? Like, they're like, mm-hmm. they're, yeah. he has some line to, to <laughs> Elizabeth where he's like, I can't believe some, you know, minister that gets arrested for loitering is considered a hero. Philip really hates the pastor. He hates pastor. Yeah, yeah, he hates those guts. And then, and then she makes his face like, she should know who the real heroes are, right? You know, not like some, Fred, right? right? Like that's what they right, say, right? Right? Not some, um, you know, who, who want to save the world here and now. Not some like storybook, fa- storybook fantasy about the afterlife or something like that, <laughs> right? It's a great line. But like, they should know who she should know who the real heroes are, which is the Elizabeth line. In my brain, Elizabeth is also still thinking about storybook characters, right? Like. I I would venture a guess that she's she's not thinking about Fred though Philip is because Philip is always like very tapped into the like the mater- their material reality in better and worse ways. But I think in, for Elizabeth, it's like you know it's like Rosa Luxemburg or it's like whoever mm-hmm. like uh, it's you know Lenin or it's somebody that is Lenin, and Mark yeah, it's Lenin, like somebody yeah. who is being put on a pedestal who right. like she has an image of it's not the people who are like making the sacrifices on the ground. And I think that's like an important divide mm-hmm. between Philip and Elizabeth. I she also has, she, she has no sense also that the thing they believe in has many of the features of a religion as well. Right. And she has no idea that that's this somehow is my it's, favorite line. it's completely is- distinct. I mean, anybody who studies religion picks up and, you know, and, and also being my age and meeting Marxists in the nineties a lot, I can't help but like I've heard this so many times. Like you don't really hear this anymore, but I heard it a lot at UMass in the nineties. I remember thinking, all right, this is not really my thing, but like, you know, it was weird and interesting. You know what I mean? 
I've said this to John before and I might have said it already on the pod, but it's related, which is like a bunch of people I know from grad school who are like, you know, identify themselves as like ultra leftist, whether it be Marxist or, or other versions of, of like leftist political ideologues, <laughs> like are people who come from incredibly conservative religious upbringings. Yes. That's a common, the books about that actually, that, that something about that disposition is like causes this um, yeah. boomerang effect where you end up going from one extreme thing into the, something else that is also extreme, but has some of the features of the original extreme thing. You know? And so that, that's, that's the yeah. flip side of the, yeah you know, leftists who became neocons, right? Like yeah. that's the, yeah. one, yeah. That one goes in one direction, the other goes in the other direction, but it's a similar dynamic going on. Somebody it, wrote this book about these labor organizers in New York City and a, a large number, a number of them grew up in Orthodox Jewish backgrounds. And that's not some random yeah. fact, right? Well, and it, it's interesting right? that that's the piece of Paige's like whole thing that Elizabeth like holds on to right like the thing that yeah. elizabeth sees and is able to hear from Paige is like she wants something she wants to like she wants to be connected to something what if we could give her the something to be connected to like elizabeth sees that this is a potential opening and i think it's because it's the part of Paige that like she understands like she also wanted something like she wanted she wanted there for her life to have more meaning than it did and it was like the communist or the soviet cause that gave it meaning and she wants to make sure that like that desire for meaning doesn't get co-opted by like something false like religion for her daughter but that's the thing that she yeah. identifies with because she does say in this early scene where Paige is talking about the protests and after Paige walks away, Elizabeth does say at least she has some passion in her or something to that effect, right? Which yeah. I think is, yeah. is this part of the same recognition that Elizabeth has for Paige. Totally. And, and people like her get very angry if you try to suggest that what they believe in has any features that are similar to, to uh, believing in a religion. They get very – like that hits a very sensitive nerve, even though it's obvious to me that's the case. It's like yeah. – you know, uh, 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 I've noticed that, by the way. It's like very, they don't like that at all. Exactly why, like, the thing that Elizabeth identifies in Paige is precisely the thing that sets her and, to some extent, Philip off, right? Yes. It's like, mm -hmm. you're, you're, I, John, I think you're right that it, like, it totally hits a nerve. And Philip and her are very different. And this is exactly the kind of thing that's, like, pushes right on that fissure point between them, right? They really don't see the thing with Paige the same. You know, he thinks she accuses her of grooming her or whatever or something for the to, to be in the in this thing. And it's like really uh, to become part of it, you know, and she's just innocently going to join the church and stuff. She's trying to hang on to the thing and he's kind of drifting, you know, a little bit. And Paige is caught in this in this tug of war. And because she's caught in the tug of war, it's, I think, notable to map when Philip and Elizabeth align with one another when it comes to Paige and then when they depart from one another, right? In this episode, we actually yeah. see both of those, right? We see yeah. this early on. They're both like Paige is a little bit full of herself for her like imaginary sky friends uh, when there are real heroes, et cetera, et cetera. But then they depart by the end of the episode when Elizabeth is like, well, let's actually think about kind of indoctrinating her into, you know, recruiting her into the KGB. How about the spycraft, though? She sets them up <laughs> and nail, nails them, right? I feel like the piece of this that is 
lingering here for us is this really crazy plan by Philip and Elizabeth to like just take their kids up to upstate New York, which like that's all well and good, except that like, as we've said, it's a far drive. And also they know they know two things. One, they know that Paige is already suspicious of every single thing that they do. And they know that Larrick is not in Nicaragua and like is likely the the, the reason why um, the phone dude and Kate are dead. So I understand that like given that second piece, they're like, we got to go to upstate New York and like check on Jared because that's where he is. But how do they not realize one, that Paige is going to know that something's up and two, that they're walking into Larrick's open gun wielding arms. And the waking them up in the middle of the night and the kids are like, what are you doing? And of, you know, to your point in that, like the pages further out on what she says is like her insane family to Henry or our yeah. insane family to Henry at one point, because she says it's ridiculous for us to be woken up in the middle of the night to drive nine hours um, to upstate New York for both the parents to just be gone. Like they have pieced out fully and totally. Elizabeth is on a hike. Philip is at the grocery store and gone for hours and hours and hours on end. And Paige is having none of it. If they are worried about Larrick, which obviously they are, and and Paige is having none of it, wouldn't you figure out how to not leave the kids alone? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, you would. I feel like we haven't talked enough about Philip and Elizabeth being bad parents this season. And this is like one of those moments where I'm like, you're the worst parents. I just want to yell about if my parents ever woke us up in the middle of the night to go on a secret or like surprise vacation, which Vicky and Sean would never do. Okay. (laughs) They better have a better explanation than our client canceled on this motel in upstate New York. Like, it better be like there's a water slide nearby. There's a, a the some great pizza, pizza, like a really good pie. Yeah. Nobody. Okay. No. No one's ever <laughs> thinking that there's great pizza in upstate New York. It's crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely um, not. How about like a blueberry pie with a la mode? The blueberry pie has to be the size of a house. Okay. Like there has to be a reason we are going to this place. Uh, An amazing haunted house. A really cool obstacle course. Uh, Lazy river. Lazy river. Lazy river with um, inflatable. I love a lazy river. Yeah. And just like lots of like the best, you know, craft brewed. Nor you know Adirondack North Country microbrews. But like, yes. what would it take for you to not question your parents' sanity if they did this to you? What kind of thing would have to be at the other side of it? I think they're just desperate. They can't think about that. There's some times when you just they have to go right away, so they just couldn't really. They can't deal with that at that point. You know, they have to have a better story. Paige is already onto them. What's a good story for that though? It's two in the morning, wake up, we're going upstate to the shitty hotel, we're going to drop you off there, and then we're going to disappear all day. Okay, what, what, what story is good there? Good point. There isn't a good story. <laughs> I think what this is a marker of is, and this is something we've touched upon, Danielle, this season, that Lyric, more than any other character, opponent, antagonist, obstacle, whatever, is yeah. the match of Philip and Elizabeth. Yeah. And because of that, because they're even when they're on dangerous missions, even when they have a like, you know, I can't believe we have to do this fucking bullshit thing. They are never as 
disoriented or kind of knocked out of their professional demeanor as much as with Larrick throughout the season in many different ways, often touching on them having no handle how to deal with Larrick vis-a-vis their family, vis-a-vis their kids, so on and so forth. So I think that, yes, it's a totally absurd plan to try to do this. And they don't have anything better because they're just so like fucked up by the lyric of it all. I think that that's like that you're absolutely right. And that's a really good point. We have seen Philip and Elizabeth in a number of like sketchy and potentially like dangerous to them situations. And Lyric is the first one who was able to even like get Philip in the car. So he, I think your, your assessment that he's their sort of like intellectual equal on the, on this makes a lot of sense. So yeah, but like, and like Keller to your point, that's, they're not thinking about that because they're so thrown by the lyric of it all by like the stakes of it all. Lyric gets the drop on Abigail, a KGB agent who owns the cabin. Lyric gets the drop on Philip. Then Lyric gets the drop on Elizabeth like in the span of 15 minutes of showtime or not even. Yeah. And before that, he got the phone guy and he got Kate, right? Yeah. So he's really formidable. You're right. I think, I think you have, you know, in your notes where you say, you know, uh, I think he's the most formidable uh, opponent they've ever encountered so far. Right. Which demonstrates how much of Philip and Elizabeth's entire existence is balanced on this knife's edge and how much they're losing control and how much, you know, they talked earlier about like season two is a descent into further darkness, John. And I think that there's a way in which how shook up they are and how ineffective they are rendered by Lyric is matching that descent. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is right. And I mean, maybe now is like a good, time to shift into the like the jared of it all yeah because Danielle, how did you feel when it's revealed so let me just note that jared can talk for a really long time when he's been shot in the neck chest shoulder um nonetheless he says amidst all of this blood uh that he killed his parents and sister for kate in uh, some way for the center for the cause the I watched this episode twice because I was like so shocked by this reveal that I think I lost minutes like trying to process it. I'm still kind of speechless about it because if like we talk about Lyric having the drop on like the cabin woman and Kate and the phone guy and Philip and Elizabeth, right? Like he he like one ups every one of them until the fight. Jared also, like, has at least, like, pulled the wool over Claudia's eyes, over Elizabeth's eyes, over Philip's eyes. Like, these are all people that, like, don't know what Jared has done, ostensibly. I think we're meant to believe that Kate knows, right? Like... This is a question. John, do you think that Kate knows that Jared killed his family? Ah, Wow. No, I think maybe no. I think I think she would have to tell somebody if she if that if she was if he told her that she would have to tell somebody that. That's kind of my thought as well because we do find out from Claudia that Jared was to be the first of the second generation spies. So thus, to me, that does make me that does indicate that like 
the center knows that Kate is like recruiting and actively trying to run Jared. And thus there right. is some like Moscow oversight. And I think that that means that, yeah, that Kate would have reported if she knew that. Which then, of course, makes me wonder, who does Kate think killed the parents? Well, that's the that's the piece that I'm, like, puzzling over. Like, who does Kate think killed the parents? I mean, like, I guess the Moscow line is that it was Larrick. But, like, we get from Larrick in this episode, like, it wasn't me. It's like he doubles down on that before we get the Jared reveal, right? We get a reminder that it wasn't Larrick. Right. Um, and, like, I, I like... Even in that moment, I was believing Lyric. Like, I didn't think that he... But Moscow wants them to follow the Lyric line. Being able to pull the wool over at least Claudia, Elizabeth, and Kate... uh, Claudia, Elizabeth, and Philip, and Kate, question mark. Like, that's some pretty advanced spy shit. I don't know. That that, that feels... Like pretty wild to me, and and throws what what Jared said to Elizabeth last episode. Like I'm not stupid, and Elizabeth, like I know you're not stupid, amplifies that point. Like not only are you not stupid, but you've also murdered your parents. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was a lot of thoughts. I'm 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 all over the place about this one. This was I did I did not predict this. This was not what I thought was going to happen. And as it was happening, I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> well, he confuses his love for this woman who was set as bait for, to suck him in, basically, mm-hmm. with commitment to the, the ideological cause, right? They're yes. commingled. And it's like, yeah. he's more sad about, well, well he's kind of, it's kind of both, right? He loves, thinks he loves Kate, and she loves him, doesn't know he was baited, and thinks he sacrificed himself for the cause, right? And um, note, because note to exactly that point, John, note Jared's insistence like three, four, five times. Yeah. Make sure first he says, you tell the center that I saved you. Then it becomes, make sure you tell Kate that I saved you. Yeah. And they don't understand at first. Why is he such a, what does he care about this? He barely knows about it. We're just protecting him from his parents that he doesn't know much about. Right. I, and then it slowly starts to dawn on them that, you know, he knows more than he's been saying. I wonder if that make sure you tell the center also is meant to like confuse us a little bit about like is maybe something that Kate knew is maybe that last meeting with Kate about Jared saying that he was the one like telling her he was the one that that killed his parents like is there a potentially like a way to read that as like maybe that reveal actually did happen but it was like it's unclear who lost knows. Lost in, in communication, yeah. Lost in Kate's death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, uh, that Jared, like, speech as he's dying is just so intense, right? We're going to work together and do great things. Again, John, to your point, those that's intermingled with one another, right? The love that he thinks he feels for Kate and his commitment to the cause for him are the same thing. Or then when he starts, starts to talk about his parents, right? My parents didn't understand they didn't love me. Uh, my family was a lie. My life was a lie, which is a, I mean, of course, like it's a fucked up thing for him to find this out and his parents like reject his entry into that position from his perspective. But also it's like, isn't he trying to establish that exact same life and establish that exact same lie? Wait, wait, wait uh, were they pissed about, about him 
getting together with Kate or, or joining um, the center more? Both. I thought, I thought Both. But they were mostly angry about this woman who's like 23 or whatever. Oh, no. Looking it, I, up I'm this 16-year-old. pretty sure it's both, right? Yeah. Well, I the way that I, yeah, I right. heard that was that it it's both, but it's that the center went around their yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They hate the that. Yeah. So it's like not specifically Kate. Or, or him being involved, but it's like the way that the involvement happened when they said no. It's also gross. Their kid's 16 or whatever, and this like adult woman is like ensnaring him, having sex with him, so, you know, making him fall in love with her. And it's like, imagine, you're, imagine, it's, imagine you're a son or daughter, and it's like, you know, right? That happens. How angry you'd be, you know, at both of those levels simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would also say that like it's – just like the point that it's like it's the life that he's us like he's angry at his parents for the kind of life that he's also building himself like we saw a couple of episodes ago and we've seen throughout the series that like the center is fully willing to like use honey traps and like use like like sexual favors and as a as a method of ensnarement and so like the the eye-opening part here i think for like thinking through leanne and emmett is like they're also willing to do it like to like for like to get us in right like to get our kids in and so there's kind of your eyes being open to the questionable tactics that you yourself are already engaging in perhaps forces a kind of reflection that is like deeply uncomfortable and problematic it's an excellent point, and I'm reminded of this show has no qualms with depicting its characters' kind of self-delusions or the narrative one tells oneself to like cover over the fucked upness of their reality. Because Leanne and Emmett had drew this firm line to say, no, Jared will not do this. Yes, you know, you are no, you cannot go around us to do this. You were really mad about this. And at the same time, they're the ones that surprise Philip and Elizabeth by saying that if we have to, we'll use our kids on our mission, right? Or that Fred knew and had some kind of direct or indirect relationship with Jared, right? Had toys and games and like memorabilia for Jared in his house. So like on that level, Leanne and Emmett were willing to bring the kids in, even if they then drew this additional further line. And another thing that Jared says in that, in that like long speech that he gives is, you know, he says, my dad threw me against the wall, right? So there's also then the physical violence wrapped up into it as well, like a parent against their child. I feel like the most disturbing part of that entire like speech and exchange is what he says about his sister and then and they're like oh she didn't deserve it and and philip sort of like you did it like like you did it anyway and then also philip voicing what i what i was also realizing which was like and then you like knew enough to go to the pool to like sanitize yourself and Mm. come back like there's like and let out the scream. We hear his scream in the first episode of the season. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. been educated. He learned spycraft. He know, you know, he's oh. a, he's a junior agent, right? Right. He knew how to do yeah. that. He covered up. He murdered. He covered up the murder. He had a fake scream. He cleaned himself off, and he went back to the pool. And said, and gives the line back to Philip and Elizabeth of like, I was just protecting my cover, which is of course a thing we have heard them say. We'll continue to hear them say about any sorts of fucked up things. Right. 
Which is like um, this that like I was just protecting my cover is basically like the source of Philip's like deepest insecurities around like those are the moments where we see Philip like really start to question if this is what they should be doing, right? Like And oh this is God. then the point where Paige and Jared become a little bit like ciphers for one another because totally. obviously Philip and Elizabeth in that moment see one possible future for Paige and what Jared has said and what Jared has done. And there's a certain way in which this folds back onto our conversation about Paige from a little bit ago, because there we were talking about how one of the things that Elizabeth recognizes in Paige is this desire or lack or need to believe in something, to have something like take the kind of guiding star position in her life. And what we find out about Jared is that the combination, the melding together he did of Kate with the cause, that's what fulfilled like whatever emptiness he was experiencing in his life as a result of his parents being spies, right? So like the same emptiness that Gerald, the Jared filled by dedicating himself to becoming this agent so much Mm -hmm. so that he was willing Mm -hmm. to like, quote unquote, defend himself against his parents and then in cold blood, like shoot his sister is the, is a somewhat similar emptiness that Paige sees in, or this me that Elizabeth sees in Paige that she wants to fill, you know, Soviet ideology, Marxism, Leninism, whatever into that slot. And Paige is trying to put Jesus in that slot. So like the Paige Jared parallels are already at this point in the episode, completely wild yeah. And then, because this is the show, we have to have the scene with Claudia where Claudia is like, you thought I was fucked up now. Let me amplify how different, how like wild this is by a very large factor. And that was my brain. The minute that Jared was like, I'm an agent, like all of that started. I was like, Paige is fucked. Like, but I know where we're going with this page is fucked. I like haven't seen past this episode, but I can't imagine that it gets less messy. Should we talk about the, um, the, Cla- the, the Claudia return here? So that's so amazing. Cause on the one hand, she's like, I never would have approved of that. I, if I knew about it, I would have tried to argue it. And then she goes, <laughs> these are your orders. We're going to groom, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to prepare your child to be an agent. And she doesn't, she says, it's a great line. She says, she does not belong to you. She belongs to us and to the world or something like that. The cause yes. and to the world mm-hmm. which is just really just a mouthful, boy. Um, I love Claudia. I know you hate her, Daniel, but I love her. I just do. I love her. I'm not, I, half of it's because it's Margot Martindale and I, let, you know, I can't help it, but like, I don't know. I've never seen anyway. her in anything else. Um yeah. <laughs> I I texted John this, but I was relieved when Claudia showed up initially because I'm like, at least I don't like you, but at least I have a handle on like your bullshit. Like I could (laughs) never quite get a handle on Kate's, but I didn't really trust her. Right. Um, But then like John, to your point where she's like, I would never approve this just kidding like strap on in like this is what's going on i was like you could have redeemed yourself and yet you <laughs> threw it all away <laughs> no she's saying but no 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 but none of us as individuals in the end matter it's i yeah. would never have approved it i would have tried to stop it however orders are the orders in the end and that's yeah. what they are and go do them basically sorry we're going to take your daughter yeah yeah you know? 
And this is a moment where both Elizabeth and Philip, well, Elizabeth at least initially, is on the same page of it's for us to decide, right? There's a certain, like, in that formulation, a little bit denying the state decides the fate of the child in that particular moment when they're dealing with Claudia, of course, it then shifts uh, later on. But at that very moment, they are offering a different worldview than John. What you pointed out is, you know, she belongs to the cause. She belongs to the world. She doesn't belong to you. You're her parents. But, you know, she belongs to us and the world more than to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And and this is right after Claudia insists that she didn't know anything about this. And Elizabeth just like straight up says, I believe you. Right. So it's like Elizabeth has finally given like reached a point of good faith with Claudia and then Claudia yeah. just, you know, to your point from a minute ago. I believe her. No, I believe her though. You guys don't believe her? I believe oh, her. I a hundred percent believe her. Like I fully. Mean, I, don't she, I don't think she cares. I just think she realized that that's a, that's a, a flawed strategy. That's, that's, that's guaranteed to backfire. Whereas if you can get a couple who are willing to give you their permission to talk to their kid, it is a greater chance of it succeeding. Right. But who's going to be willing? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like Elizabeth and Philip, right, are like a probably a pretty like the challenge is obviously always going to be Philip there. And that that's been the case from the beginning. I would I would put Leanne and Emmett on like an even more extreme scale. And John, this is to your point from earlier. They're they're willing to use their kids to like yeah. to 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 do this whether it be vis-a-vis Fred or like as part of the drop strategy, whatever it is. And even Leanne and Emmett were not willing to like go this far because like, this is not the lifestyle that they like want their kids to have, which is, is an interesting sort of conundrum or, or question that gets raised, which is like, what is it about this lifestyle that you don't want your children to be part of? If this is what is structuring their world in any case, like what's better, like the life of a spy or the like bourgeois life that you're providing them through your identity. Like it's a, it's a real like rock and a hard place there. Because Claudia poses that very specific point to them. Your, your page will never find any real purpose in this country. Like we can provide her with the purpose back to this conversation we've now had you know, different aspects of twice now will never develop in this country, but we, the Soviet Union, we, the cause, we, the state can give it to her. Especially now that it's Jesus or Marx, it's like becoming more <laughs> easier for Elizabeth to get there than she would have been otherwise, right? Yeah. Like the church is a great gift to, to the center, really, if you think about it, right? <laughs> Especially because it's you know? like kind of like somewhat like peace, it's a peace stick church, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, but also... The question that I have around all of this is like, yeah, the church is a great gift to the center in this way, but like has Paige walked down the road of the church a little bit too far for there to for there to be anything that replaces it? No comment. Right? Like no I mean I'm not, I'm not asking well, for a comment, but that I think is the question that this episode poses. Yes. Which is like, are we too deep in the church? For there to be any for for us to exploit that dynamic, like otherwise, and too deep into in, into American culture. I mean, there's no greater yeah. so-called American practice than civil disobedience. Oh my God, it's like you know, right? I mean, 
it, it's it's to them it's funny they they sneer at that it's really great their lines about that are really hilarious right I'm like what loitering is so some prat minister gets arrested for loitering that's heroism you know it's really funny like you know, they, they actually, they're very nasty they're very nasty they make these faces when they're talking to each other about it it's really cool you know? especially because we do know that like elizabeth did some civil rights or some civil rights activism with gregory right like yeah. back in the day doesn't yep. strike yep. me as nonviolent, though. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> nope. seems to be into the violent stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, let's then maybe turn to think about this conversation that ends this episode, ends this season between Philip and Elizabeth, where Elizabeth is like, I know we said to Claudia in the moment, no, never, this is a terrible idea. But she does need something. Maybe this is it. And Philip just is kind of dumbfounded that Elizabeth would yeah. would say this, right? He says, you know, one thing, we swore we would never do this. It would destroy her. And Philip is totally shook. And Elizabeth responds, not by like prolonging the conversation, but by calling everyone to dinner. And the final shot of the season in a show set in the 80s and like all sorts of family neoliberals and Reagan-y things happening is like this fucked up family dinner of four where Elizabeth and Philip have like these most intense, cold, like shivering looks uh, as the camera pans out from them around family dinner. Right. And, and Philip's you know, on his list of things to do. He's, he's going to unerase the, you know, kick the pastor's ass line again. And put that, <laughs> put that back in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Put that back in. Go back and threaten him again. <laughs> oh, my Use God. Use more force this time, right? It's a little bit of a cliche or a crutch for the show to rely on, but I'm okay with it for them to seed another new round of Elizabeth Philip conflict here at the end of season two, given that. The show seemingly is, I think, on purpose, walk, walking through these different cycles of their love for one another, their marriage, their relationship, in contrast with the sharp disagreements they have with one another. And like, this is a season that had a lot of reconciliation earlier on and some kind of attempts to find some genuine relationship with one another that then ends at this, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. potentially breaking point in their relationship. Yeah, but I think it also, like... I'm also okay with it. And I think it makes sense because none of the issues that they have had have actually been resolved. Right. Correct. Like the, like even the stuff at the end of season one, where they're like living apart and part of why they're living apart is because they've like lost this trust for each other. Like we've seen them make strides like in the opposite direction to like reconcile that. But, like, ultimately, like, the fact is that, like, Elizabeth is always more willing to, like, give her full self to the cause, though she can be, that can be, like, questioned and challenged. And Philip is, like, at least more open to, like, America as an idea, like, and so, like, less swayable in that sense, right? Like, that fundamental tension between Philip and Elizabeth has not been resolved. So like seeding a new round of that tension for the show, like to me feels totally earned because like ultimately the fundamental tension hasn't changed. 
Like, she clearly hates that fucking Corvette he got. Right? Like, <laughs> he hates she, it so much. He loves driving in that fucking thing, right? He's like, feels, <laughs> feels virile and powerful <laughs> and American and consumer. I mean, it's really, and that thing goes from zero to 60 and, you know, whatever, 10 seconds, whatever's fast. You know, a, a vet, by the way, such an 80s status, like, yes. you know, is, you know, sort of a bro car, you know Corvette. what I mean? Yeah, it's a bro car. So it's funny that, you know, it's like a midlife crisis, you know, mobile or whatever. So it's funny that he's got that. So she either thinks that's cute or like just that he's a fucking idiot. Like, Jesus Christ, all right, with the consumerism, you know? It's a Camaro Z28. He's such a – oh, it is? I, yeah. I, I, I Camaro thought it was a Z28. Court, okay, yeah. A Camaro, yeah. Um, a lot of people in Jersey where I grew up had cars like that, you know? Definitely. I I believe it. Yeah, definitely. Um, What were those people like? uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was like the precursor to Jersey Shore. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I can't answer this without uh, saying stuff you're going to have to edit later. So I'll just pass. (laughs) uh, Not not people that are... Honestly, I appreciate that that you have that, like, foresight. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) I mean, I'm all for trash-talking New Jersey. Is that what we're questioning here? Yeah. All right, next. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get to this final scene between Elizabeth and Philip, we get Philip, like... Totally sneaking up on Arcadi in the, store of the magazine rack and just like a classic <laughs> Lev Gorn moment um, where so he's good. like, you know, I'm often under surveillance and Philip with his Lenin beard, I would like to point out. Yes. He's like, uh, well, then you'll understand how serious I am about this. And, he's, you know, the ultimatum, right? If you ever get near our daughter without our permission, then we're finished. Dramatic Excellent. moment. Dramatic. So good. Yeah. And it's and the very, very, very rare Matthew Reese Lev Gorn share a screen time moment. I oh, felt sad right. about the fact that we, like that this scene made me realize that we don't get to see them on scene together ever. And like how much fun would that be? Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. That's a great deal. Wait, wait. Do they show the magazine that he's reading, or or not? Yeah. So Arcadi has Popular Mechanics, which maybe makes sense (laughs) in a season about like the ARPANET and stealth and all of this shit. And Philip pulls out the uh, Warren Beatty cover Rolling issue of Rolling Stone. Oh my god. Popular mechanics, holy shit. I've never read that, but I've definitely seen it at newsstands like my whole life, right? You know, yeah. I don't even know what's in there, but it's like definitely something. Like that. so that's really I've never opened one before, you know. But wait, wait, popular mechanics like a car mag or, or like a or like a or like a proto wired mag. I think proto wired like, would be I think of it as in oh, okay, my brain, okay. I thought it was a car magazine. Yeah, and I me have too. my entire life, but it actually makes more sense that that's not what it is. Right. So the Wikipedia refers to it as magazine of popular science and technology featuring automotive, home, outdoor, electronics, science, do-it-yourself and technology topics, military topics, aviation and transportation, space, tools and gadgets are also. So it's like why it's like wired. It's more yeah. like wired. Mm-hmm. But but I still think that must have been a cool. I mean, there's a hundred things like that now. There's not a lot like that then. It probably was a pretty cool. I now. I now regret never reading it. I'm sure that was, was cool. Uh, you know what I mean? Gadgetry, home stuff, you know, like, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. It turns out that 
Arcadi missed out. Jay Leno had a fucking regular col- column about his cars starting in March 1999. So Philip <laughs> Arcadi, they really, you know, they missed the boat on that one. Full disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but Philip loves his cars. Uh, no, I, I know, but the last thing I would want make me any gag. part of is like <laughs> Jay, Jay Leno. Leno in his like jean on jean outfits, like writing about cars. <laughs> Uh, so we, <laughs> we should talk about the one that actually does involve a car segue. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> that we haven't yet talked about Nina or talked really about Stan mm. at all. And obviously mm-hmm. this is the scene where Stan goes so far as to smuggle in a camera in like his tie clip or tie pin or whatever to steal the echo program from one of its three secure locations take a dramatic pensive walk on a bridge in what's supposed to be rock Creek park or whatever. Um, and but, it, but, but it's really one of those tunnels in central park that goes under the West side highway and leaves you another part of central park. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry. No, river, no, no, no. Riverside park. Sorry. Riverside I, park. I think that is Riverside yeah. park. And then later they're in yeah, yeah, yeah. park as we will discuss <laughs> in Gloss, no doubt about it. Right. And then, and we think Stan maybe goes through with it, right? He puts something in the like hole in the bench or whatever. And then we find out that it's literally a piece of paper that says, tell Nina, I'm sorry. And Nina is ceremoniously marched away and out yeah. into like a vehicle to leave the embassy. Yeah. That's a good scene. I like what that. Is, why was it a good scene? Well, lots of reasons. I mean, first of all, uh, Burov, who we haven't talked about yet, you know, oh, he's, he's yeah, very, yeah. very upset. He's beside himself. And he finally gets up. He, he's deciding, what do I do? Do I act like, you know, I don't know her that well or whatever? And then he can't take it anymore. He has to say goodbye. He gets up. And it's this great scene where they lock eyes. And fucking <laughs> Arkady sees this. And he's like, Oh, so you were stripping her. <laughs> oh, no, Arcadi Ar- 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 knew that before that no, moment. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. I think he learned it then. At least for two episodes. I think, I think he learned it then. I think he knows it. I think when he, when Oleg is like. I think, I think he suspected like, it, but he didn't know it. Okay, fair enough. That's fair. That's fair. But that's when a, like, Oleg, it, that's, a, that's an obscure epistemological point, John, which you are not usually well known to make. So, um, sorry, you killed him. He's dead. Good. I don't feel good. <laughs> no, I'm feeling flushed. Okay, he suspected that he was Stippner, and then he got confirmed that he was Stippner in the moment at which they lock eyes, and Arcadi's just like, eh, "That's what I thought," you know. He's not like amazed, like, oh my God, he was stripping her. He's like, yeah, you know, I figured that, you know, right? <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well, right. well, that was your reaction, John. I cry. Like, I cried this time of the previous time I had watched <laughs> The Americans as Nina's walking down the stairs and her and Olya turn around and make eye contact. Like, that gets me crying now, two watches in a row. I it's sad. That's my take, right? It's very sad. That's all I could think about, right? Was he figured out, right? And this I say, like, no. not not as a trolling way, but like, you are somebody who is in touch with his feelings. And so I'm, you know. Yeah, uh, I just couldn't help it. I love Arcadi. I just always fix it on him in every scene. I can't, <laughs> I can't think of anything else but Lev, right? It's the most right? understandable character flaw no. that all of us share. All right. All right. So Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, no need to apologize. So here's like where my brain was at, which was in though I am like very much on team Stan is bad at his job almost all the time. 
Never <laughs> once did I think that Stan was like I noticed gonna go through with this. <laughs> You've noticed. Like I didn't <laughs> I didn't know what was on that sheet, but I knew that it was not whatever needed to be there. Stan was never gonna give up these plans. Like that <laughs> I think we might need to re-listen to episode twelve to <laughs> see right. if that's true. <laughs> in, the, in this episode when I was watching okay. it, not okay. like, oh, I've never thought that Stan was like gonna gonna be turned. No, no, no. I for well, sure uh, like, but, thought he was gonna be turned. Wait, wait, but why why okay, he took a huge risk in stealing them in the first place. I mean this, just doing that alone means prison the rest of your life. Yeah. Forget about it, right? For like sure. that was crazy. So if, if he did that, you still thought he was gonna do that, but not there turn was them over. Something about the way that like Stan's nervousness and like physical sickness and like the dream and all of it. There's something about all of that in that in this episode when he then like does the drop at the bench where I was like, I don't know what this is, but this isn't the thing that it's supposed to be. Right. Like no, I, not necessarily like the whole season. I was like, Oh, Stan would never turn. No, no, no. no. I I'm still think Stan is turnable. But like, there's something about the way that this episode is played that I was like, this, like this doesn't. I don't think that he. I don't think that he does it. I think that Noah, Noah Emmerich is really great in the show. He's just his face yeah. is so like. Yeah. He's, he's just his expressions, his face. He just really uh, incredible degree of insight that he has, and incredible fucking like obliviousness that he has, and it's mm-hmm. like alternates back and forth, and it's so great character to have both of those things. Great. Yeah. Great, yeah. And to your point, he portrays it so well. Like his, as Danielle and I talked about, his pensive face or yeah. his lips pursed face is really good acting. Yeah. Yeah. I read the Arkady Oleg eye contact, brief moment <laughs> of eye contact. <laughs> this might surprise no one to hear. Um, in that the what happens to Nina, like, the beats of what happens to her in this episode are told through like four moments of like face or eye contact. Right. Cause when she reads the, what Stan left for her, the camera starts on just like the lip, her lips, her mouth and the bottom of her nose, which quiver then go up to her eyes when she starts to like shed a couple of tears. Then we get this moment of eye contact between Nina and Oleg then we get this moment of eye contact between Arkady and Oleg, which I think is a, this is really sad. I wish we didn't have to do this more of an eye contact than a Arkady recognizing that Nina and Stan were fucking. And then there's the <laughs> Nina like forcibly breaking the eye contact when she, in an extremely contrived moment, sees Stan out of the, she like out of the back of the car mm, she's being driven yeah. away. Which is a very, very different vibe than the eye contact her and Oleg had. That so, was that was a little that was rounding the bag a little bit widely. I thought in baseball terms, <laughs> putting Stan, putting Stana in there, like come on, yeah, give me a break. Definitely, you know, he happens to be there and he sees the thing pulling. Well, it's like, yes, whatever. although it is totally consistent with Stan's character that he would yeah. want to be there and like staking yeah. out the embassy for one last. Yeah, that's true. Arena. But then the eye contact moment is the baseball metaphor you just said. And yeah. the only reason I'm okay with it is because of that contrast with Oleg. Like Danielle and I have been talking throughout this season about how does Nina herself understand her relationship with Oleg and her relationship with Stan. And obviously like Stan literally betrayed her and potentially sent her to her death. 
But here we find out that like Oyeg was the one that she had the connection with all along. Does Stan know in the end is part of the reason why he does not leave the real information in the crack and the bench because he knows that Nina's been playing him or he just doesn't want to defect? Oh, that's a good question. I read it as the latter. Like he just like he he hasn't been turned like he doesn't he doesn't want to walk down that road fully. Because Oleg knows that she loves him and she's been playing Stan and that's true and he's to- he understands that completely and that seems to be obvious. I don't know, Stan might know deep down somehow, you know? I don't know. I think it's also like a question. This is a question that I like have had this whole season which is like is Nina fully playing Stan? Like is it only a facade? Like are there some feelings there? Like I think that one reading that you're offering is like Stan has picked up on the fact that there's like something inauthentic happening. Another mm-hmm. reading yeah. is like Nina's confused and like kind of doesn't know who she loves or who she loves more. She just wants to survive. I think it's mostly Nina is running or playing Stan, but there is also some genuine feeling in addition to that. And thus, I think that for Stan, I think after the lie detector, he's willing to like fully buy into the Nina is on the up and up and like this is a real situation. So I think Stan doesn't go through with it as a combination of unconsciously he still has these concerns about what's happening with Nina, even if he thinks it's like Nina just loves me or whatever, we're going to go off or whatever. And also because he's so American and so identifying with the American government, I just don't think he could go through with uh, treason. I think that Nina's feelings for Stan are complicated and it's not clear to me that like she was only playing Stan that she had no emotional stakes in that and that she's only doing like whatever she's doing for Oleg like I don't think that it's like a black and white I guess is like what I'm saying should we go to the segments let's go to segments all right major important moment in a season finale Danielle let's go into the dossier where should we start okay let's start with Nina (laughs) Because I'm not sure this is the last time we're ever going to see Nina. I just, I don't want either of you to say anything, but I'm like, I'm one, not sure that it's the last time we're going to see Nina. I'm also not sure that like Nina's going to die, right? Like she gets this like ceremonious, like done, 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 leading to the car. They put her in the car. There are like (laughs) tall, like henchmen, very like, very (laughs) ominous. But like, I don't know. I just, I don't trust anybody. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going, what's going to happen with Nina. And I just feel like that is worth putting in the dossier. Like just, there's a seed of doubt in my mind that like, she's gonna, she's dead. She's dead. (laughs) All right. Do you have any other season three, like early predictions? Oh, I mean, honestly, I just feel like Sandy's lover, you have it on here, Sandy's paramour. I feel angry about the use of that word. Um, I feel a, the Hanley family doesn't like the term paramour. Okay, sure. I feel like that dude is trying to infiltrate the FBI's weaknesses. Like that's like in my brain, that's exactly where I would go. 
any Martha predictions you want to make? Because I you predicted Martha was gone in season two. She She's did. here. She's here. She's not long for this world. I still like hold fast to like, <laughs> Martha death prediction. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any other dossier things. I, I guess. We're- I mean, she fi- she figured out the toupee. That's a big. That's a huge red flag. Like you're right. <laughs> like that's a big. He's like, what? Really? <laughs> We've been having sex for months. <laughs> he's, shocked. he's shocked that she figured out his fucking hair is fake. Right? Like- I said this to John when we were recording last episode, but just like. I just feel like sometimes Martha is so stupid. Like this man who won't let you list him on the on the marriage certificate or your employment info, who refuses to sleep over at your house, who wears a toupee. You're like, oh, he just wears a toupee. You don't start to ask more questions about this. Come on. Right. He has normal good hair and wears a wig over it. He's not bald like, you know, right. Fred is right. He has a good head of hair to begin with. Which Martha does not know. She thinks it's just straight up toupee. Because she's also an strange, idiot when yeah. it comes to Philip. Wow. That's mean. <laughs> Slander I, to Martha. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. She was the recipient of the, of the greatest oral sex of her life. And she still didn't figure out it was a toupee until after that, right? Gotta pull on the hair a little bit harder. I was just going to say, sex. she's putting her hands in the wrong Apparently. place if she hasn't pulled that thing off yet. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. This yeah. is this is the best Daniel Dossier prediction ever, I think, <laughs> by implication. Um, that's, that's how with that, I think Danielle has officially gone on record is believing that while they're at wall Clark is going down on Martha, she will pull the two payoff, and that's when it all comes to a head, I think is the prediction. She's correct. That and, should have happened. That's absolutely correct. Clark shoots Martha. <laughs> All right, officially in the dossier. Or, Let me say one thing, though. She does not say when and how she figured out that it was a toupee. Yeah. So it is possible that, you know, although she didn't pull it off, she became aware of it through, you know, incidental contact. With <laughs> just saying, just saying. Honestly, we don't know. Fair, point. fair point. Fair point. Filed so in the dossier. <laughs> right. Thank you. That's an important contribution, John. We appreciate <laughs> We appreciate your service. I can't wait for this dossier to be cataloged. Do you want to talk a little bit about our cataloging? Yeah. So we've had um, a brilliant listener, listener brilliant. Mike from California, who took us up on what we thought was a joke to yes. like someone to go back in and find all the Daniel Dasse entries and like list them out for us. And listener wow. Mike is like the hero of the Not Quite Great Books Wonderful. podcast. He's not not Pastor Tim, not the pastor arrested for loitering, not Jesus. Listener Mike is the hero. And has provided us with a spreadsheet of all of the Daniel Dasse. Do, do you know this guy? No, 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 you don't. He's not, a, uh, he's not someone really? that we yeah. know outside of doing this. And he wow. contacted us and we're going to talk more about it. Um, I think in next week's episode, we'll do a little bit of a, a deeper dive and, and think through some of that. But we are thrilled and impressed and just like very thankful. Wait, you can do a deep dive, deep dive, and the deeper dive in the fact that you have a listener who's making spreadsheets. <laughs> That's I think sharing the data, in, sharing the data with you, right, in tables. Okay, inevitably, that's a part of the dossier. I'm suspicious right, okay. that we're being recruited to a spy agency. 
Okay. Anyway, I am not, I am not Mike. I just want to make that clear. Dummy John knows I'm way too lazy. I don't even know what a spreadsheet That's is. Exactly. So, I, so, I, I do know that John <laughs> is way too lazy <laughs> to create a burner to long con us right. uh, in this way. Right. He would never. He would and literally never. Or whatever you know you need for that, and there's no way I'm doing either of those things, right? All right, let's go to gloss, which is, I think is going to be a long, full segment. Um, does anyone have any other thoughts they'd like to add about Martha? Conversation about kids, the fact that she has a quote-unquote ladysmith gun, Elizabeth calling while Clark is there, any, any of the above? Clark's shock about the gun feels like it's something you should have known that like this was happening like you're too checked out about this relationship and it seems like it's still an important piece of the mission for like this to have been happening it just felt like a real misstep on Clark's part to not as Philip to know that this woman has a gun doesn't he ever check the drawers in Martha's house because he literally I mean well I guess we don't know how Martha makes it seem like it's fairly recent that she actually went through with the purchasing of the gun. Like she had Mm -hmm. mentioned it way back at the start of season two that maybe she would need to do it. And Clark kind of dismissed her. And now she's actually gone through with it. But the point stands like, A, got to check the drawers out. B, he's checked out. Who keeps... Who keeps their gun next to the cheese slicer in the fucking pork <laughs> I, mean, I mean, listen, if I had a gun, I would keep, I would keep it in a box with a lock on it under my bed or whatever. You know, not like he opens up this thing that's like <laughs> next to the lobster fucking, you know, Honestly, next to Nutcracker a and a corkscrew. Great point. A right? I mean, come on. Stellar. Stellar point. Unless she put it there because she wanted him to there we just go. That. Just, that's just thought of that. That's the that's the right call. That's the that's exactly right. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, that was. I would like to talk was. extensively about Stan's dream. First okay. of all, John, does this remind you of anything like another show oh. that we both enjoy? Oh, I was just gonna say, Please, like, go go okay. there, Danielle. You can uh, you can check out of this conversation. This uh, is a John obviously. and I. I mean, this is a direct copy of The Sopranos. A billion percent. A billion percent. No, it's like embarrassingly so. It's like everyone where it's either Tony or somebody else having sex with somebody and the other person is looking at them. They're saying funny stuff and it's like, you know, right? Uh, Supposed to humiliate the person having the dream because someone else, you're a cuck. You're a cuck in this scenario, right? Because mm-hmm. you know your wife is getting shook by some. Not by anyone. Right? By Vlad. By the KGB yeah, yeah. like junior officer who Stan murdered yeah. in cold fucking blood in season yeah. one. Like so, that's right. now, incredibly yeah. twisted. <laughs> so, yeah, now he's stripping mm-hmm. your wife in his in his dream. Yeah, right after he gives the fast food line, right? Like yes. he repeats the same <laughs> line about fast food that Stan gave to him. There's one thing I in particular wanted to highlight about the dream in addition to the Sopranos-ness of it all. And that is I hadn't picked this up before, but before we know it's a dream, it just seems like Stan is walking into the offices. Martha's at the mail robot. In Stan's dream, Martha is stuffing files into her purse. So like Stan's unconscious is suspicious of Martha. And that is revealed to us in this dream and that's just like a really nice touch and i really enjoy yeah. that honestly yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes up for the like 
Fred couldn't have gotten all of that happening in the beginning. The like Stan being aware, unconsciously aware of Martha's like dubiousness does feel like a beautiful chef's kiss. Yeah. And this is just so John, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall any other dream sequences in the entirety of the rest of the show. This is certainly the first one that we've had. I can't remember any future ones. Like we get we get memories or we get flashbacks, especially to the youth of Elizabeth, the youth of Philip, but we don't get a lot of like pure dream soprano style dream sequences. Right, or any for that matter. Yeah. They never show Philip and Elizabeth dreaming, yeah. right? As far as I remember. So this is just right. such a like unique instance and that and it makes it so important. And it's like it's there's something I think also about the dream that is part of the reason both why Stan would go through with betraying his country and why he would not do that. Like both of those aspects of it are provoked by the dream in some form. I love the joke. And again, Susan, Susan Meisner, just, she can do no wrong for me. I'm sorry. I just, faces, expressions, exasperations, the way she leans on the kitchen cat. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, she's, so, they get, she's not in the show a lot, but every second is just, wow. Yep. Nails every single mark. It's just, you know. Perfect point. Perfect point. Let's I, talk. I about- almost wish, yeah, they, they need to keep her, they, they need to keep the Stan, Sandy storyline going because she's so great that it's funny. It's like, they, have them, like they, have, they have to you know, keep her in there somehow. You That's know, a good a point, bit. John. Like, there's not necessarily, no. there's not a necessity to that early scene yeah. between the two of them. But if you have Susan Meisner, no. who's going to act as well as you're pointing out, like, of course, have her around to lean on the counter and have that conversation with him. With yeah. Him. Like, like, like add a scene in where they're eating bunt cake and he's, and fucking, you know, they're there. She tells her, you know, maybe you don't know me as well as you think. And then, you know, this like little est talk mixed in that. It's great. It's fantastic. You know? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Arcadi. John, I believe you wanted to say a little bit more about the relationship between Arcadi and Oleg. Oh man. I love that. He does not, he, his Nixonian resentment of, of B- Boroff is really intense when he gets there. He's like, Oh, you know what? Well, well, your daddy can't get you in the secret skiff room. So get the fuck out <laughs> motherfucker. Right. Go play with your computers over there. You know, <laughs> in the beginning, and, then, and then by the end, you know, he's, he's gets the strings pulled to get, you know, to get in there. Right. There's a lot of, it's interesting. You see this internal dynamics within the KGB about privilege and status and yeah. Right. Uh, you know, his dad is, he says, is tight with Andropov. Andropov, or Andropov, I don't know how you say Andropov, Andropov. Or Andropov fo- yeah. follows Brezhnev, right? Mm-hmm. And so Correct. Brezhnev is still alive, but this means that his father is going to advance even further, I think, and therefore, I guess, the son would too, right? He's not the general secretary yet, but it's he's a very, very important man in, like, the second most powerful person right now in the Soviet Union. But Arkady really hates this motherfucker, right? It's funny. I, I, like there's the static just makes me laugh. I don't know. It's just it's just you know it's funny. I could listen to the John and John talk about Soviet bureaucratic <laughs> politics show every it's goddamn week. Fine, then I'll then I'll extend <laughs> the point. Then if you like, just like open, open, open the invitation. So, I mean, did, did you also find that amusing? They're like static. I mean, or, or what did you think of it? Yeah, Danielle. I don't have the, the like, for me, the Soviet backdrop is, is less prominent and it's more like, <clears> oh, this is just like 
toxic masculinity and how it works out in like <laughs> this kind of setting. <laughs> right. Like I didn't have those that like that context wasn't in my brain. It was just like, oh, this is like a who's is bigger contest. And then it, it yeah. evens out. Well, when I say Nixonia, I mean that very specifically. Yeah. Like Nixon, you know, resented the Kennedys, totally. resented people from these fancy backgrounds, resented the felt that he was self-made and was excluded from society and his kind of certain kind of conservatism comes from that anger. And I feel like Arcadi is a kind of enlisted guy, whatever that means in that system. Yeah. And Boroff is not. He's a guy who gets sent to summer camp in America to fucking play with technology. And he, he treats him like an idiot at first, right? Um, yeah, I mean, John and I were having this conversation off mic, but like Kosa Ronan's <clears throat> acting skills to go from being fuckboy, fail son, dick measurer in the first couple of episodes yeah. to one of the emotional cores of the, the TV show, The Americans, yeah. by the end yeah. of the season. Quickly, quickly. It's so too. remarkable. And quickly uh, in like a believable yeah. way, yes. right? Like that, that, that is a, is a 180, but it feels earned. Let me say one more thing about this. Borov, in my reading so far, is a bridge between like old Soviet and eventually Gorbachev. Oh, which is gonna I present. love this point so much. My th- we're, we're, my theory, John, is that Oleg is like the cipher for Gorbachev. Yes. Yeah, exactly. He Because rep- he says to him, you're never going to beat the Americans if you think like a bureaucrat. And Arkady thinks like a bureaucrat, right? You've got to be innovative. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be, you know what we might understand as Machiavellian or something like this, right? <laughs> you'd, you'd have to, you have to think outside of the box that your bureaucratic KBG, KGB training will not teach you. And, and John says he well, hates the cave. And, and, uh, and uh, always uh, already go, in the cave, even with those go, go. who don't want to be. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, Gorbachev rented up, re- represented all of those things, right? Innovation and preservation, right? Science and technology, looking toward the future and a kind of, you know, uh, the way to preserve power while innovating, right? And Boroff is all those things. Brilliant. I love this. I feel better about my theory. So just to add a little more Soviet politics to this all. So this episode takes place in late March 1982. Mm-hmm. And Brezhnev uh, dies in November 82. So we're a couple months away from Brezhnev dying and Andropov becoming for uh, general secretary. So, yes, this all checks out historically as well. Um, I'd like to point out Lev Gorn's line reading of his line to Stan when he says, Stan, tell Stan to stop. This is, A, of course, a power play on Stan in multiple levels, both emotionally and spycraft-wise, because it's like, oh, now you know that like Nina has also been reporting back on you. Yeah. And when he says, stop telling Nina that you love her so much, a Russian woman wouldn't like that. Just like... Balls to the wall line and yeah. line reading from Levcorn. <laughs> probably pretty good advice also. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't have any. And I didn't have any paramours when I was. Uh, no, why? Why? Stop. I'm literally going to text my sisters and say that you're abusing me on our podcast episode <laughs> with the constant use of the word paramour. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts Sorry. on the band, Danielle? Were you like out on the band? Like you're no Haley Williams zone just by virtue of its name, even though it's spelled differently? I honestly don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to play Danielle. Wait, 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 next time I'm with Danielle, our next let's teach Danielle about music is going to be about Paramore, apparently. 
Um, I have no comment on Paramount. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's I'm, I'm, that's I'm, I'm, some I'm, that's some millennial bullshit that John has no time. For. Yeah, I don't, that's just I don't even. I'm not even listening to you right now. I'm thinking what I want to say. Next. Oh, good. So we're um, going to invite you to talk about Lev Gorn some more. Wait, but wait, wait. What I want to say though is, <laughs> it's possible that that a light bulb goes off when Arcadi tells him stop telling her you love her so much that he that. Stan realizes he's being mm-hmm. played a little more yeah. than he thought. That's a very yeah. intimate detail. It's like, yeah. you know, like, you know what I mean? That is the kind of thing you would tell your superior. You know, I've got him because he says this to me all yeah. the time. Anyway, just throwing it out a good there. Good point. Give us a Lev Gorn update. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so there's this show on Apple TV that me and the wife like to watch called For All Mankind. About, yeah, I've uh, heard about this. It's it's pretty good. It's a sci- if you like, I love sci-fi stuff, Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever. I just like anything, anything like that. So this is an alternate an alternate future show about the space program where we land on Mars. Blah blah blah. Fucking uh, you know, what's that Swedish actor's name? Uh, who's tall Alexander and kind Star-Gard. of Skarsgård? No, no. <laughs> anyway, we are loving anyway, this show, uh, by the way, John. So it's it, it's a pretty good show, by the way. So Kate. The, the actress who plays Kate is a big part of this show. Okay. She's in a very big role, and she's fantastic in it. So in this latest season, Lev Gorn plays a cosmonaut. <laughs> oh, oh, he stole my heart. Like, come on. How much would I love cosmonaut Lev? <laughs> I, I also funny. love it's... an Apple TV Plus show, so I feel I feel open to it's that. Where's this brand loyalty yeah. from Danielle? I, like I, I have not no, been I'm, disappointed I'm, by any of the Apple Apple shows that I've watched. John, you're talking about Joel Kinnaman. That's... Joel Kidman, right. sorry, yeah, he's like did not know he Swedish was Swedish. So. Yeah, uh, maybe I made that no, up. No, you're correct. Sw- like Swedish American, yeah. good call. You got that's it. That's what I thought. Right, that's it. what I thought. Um, oh, well. I know, I know him as I know him as Agent Holder from the show called The Killing. I'm very really familiar. Good. Yes. Yeah, he's great in that show, right? For sure. Um, anyway, long story short, Lev is a <laughs> cosmonaut. He has static with the American, you know, uh, captain of the American, you know, spaceship or whatever, and it's funny and. You know, he's just really uh, his typecast. I mean, I'm happy he's getting paid. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's, he's paying the mortgage, but I'm also a little sad that, like, just like he kvetched to me when we had an intimate moment at the gym. <laughs> you know, he said, "I only, I only get roles for Russians." Can you believe that? We, we want and I'm more like, for. Yeah, I can. Of course, I can believe that. You know, you're extremely Russian seeming and sounding. We want more <laughs> for our boy Lev. We want more than just a typecast. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like you can do better. I mean, I take the money and be on the spaceship on Mars and be the cosmonaut, yeah. but you know, also you could be Hamlet. You know, why not? Oh, I would love to see Lev Gorn Hamlet. That I would totally. That I'm taking a special trip down to the city, crashing on John and Jackie's couch once again. Me and Reese the cat hang out, and then John and I make an important friendship uh, visit to whatever theater Lev Gorn Hamlet's playing. I bet yeah, he would definitely, be so definitely. into like you guys waiting at the stage door to like get his autograph. And he'd be like, I do my it. bro from the gym. <laughs> like I brought a friend. Yeah, remember me, remember me, remember me. I, I talked to you twice about, about your career. Remember, remember you. you know, I, I have faith. You're memorable. Um, I mean, well, we can say in what way, but you know, so many crickets. Okay, let's talk about camera work. (laughs) Just like to, I know we probably need to move things along a little bit. Camera work in this episode just very different. Like the dream sequence is filmed different than anything else. There's like a little more shaky camera and the 
cold open, both with regards to like handheld camera, both with regards to page at the protest and them like chasing down the shoes. It's just like a lot more dynamic camera movements than is typical of a normal Americans episode. That's all I wanted to say, which I think is fitting with the plot ridiculousness that we've discussed. I think that's right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Uncle Drew codename for Larrick, because <laughs> in the last episode, John and I talked about like what our codes and code names and code words would be. And so then we get like another like sort of what sounds like on the fly. It's obviously not on the fly, but like like and Phil Philip knows exactly what Elizabeth is talking about. But I was like, I was literally like, who's Uncle Drew? What I could yeah, not figure yeah. out what they were talking about. So yeah. they're better it's spies. A, than it's us. Andrew Larrick is his name, yes. Oh I, yeah, I didn't realize that. Okay. Honestly, a great poll. This is why this is why like you're our guiding light, John. I mean, I've watched this show enough times that I should remember things like this, yes. And yeah. it is it is Andrew Larrick. I was ninety nine percent sure, but did just nice. Okay. Well I think we solved that mystery. Right. The other point that I want to make is about Stan's camera tie pin. I'm just saying, pins as cameras. I thought that the young pioneers pin was a camera. True. It was not. But here we have a, a pin and a camera, so I wasn't that far off. It's a great point. Um, I've never great been point. a tie clip, tie pin person, but if I had a camera in it, I would. I don't wear ties, but like if I did... Yeah, then I, I would see do you it rock with like a skinny tie with a pattern shirt with like yeah. a funky pin. I mean, that's I what I've that's that. what I've done. Not without the pin, unfortunately. That's what I mean. I've done that at very few moments in my professional career. But I think maybe okay. when we met, you were wearing. That would a, make a, sense. A, we met at conferences back when I was way more insecure. Ironically, I've returned to conference insecurity, academic insecurity in my middle age, but that's a different story for a different <laughs> conversation between us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one thing we didn't get to in discussing Nina earlier on, as she's being walked out um, of the Residentura, they frame her so that she is like mirroring Lenin's body posture in the famous Ooh, portrait really? of Lenin wow. that they have oh, hanging up like yeah. a gigantic like painting of it in the wow. Residentura Ooh. as she's about to walk down the stairs. So very yeah. cool camera shot. Danielle, any thoughts about Pastor Tim Cheney himself to the Air Force base? Gates? I don't know. It- it, it just felt like so on the nose. <laughs> like, of course, Pastor Tim is like chained himself in this silly way to, I don't know. There's something about it that just felt like, yeah, yeah. Okay. We get it. So then when Philip has the reaction, like, oh, he's the hero later, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, I was on board with that. <laughs> like the camera though is framing him seeing him the way that Paige sees him yes. as a hero, right? Which I, which like that I appreciated. I appreciated that the visual cues were like, he's a hero. And also that like, okay, he's like at a base where nothing is happening. Like uh, it felt a bit futile to me, I guess is like where, where I was. Yeah. There's also the camera shot in that scene of all the protest signs just in a pile after the police have like rounded everybody up, which was pretty funny. To like me. that's what the police are rounding up. It's the signs. Come on, yeah. guys. Yeah, exactly. They're gonna put them in a neat pile and cart them away. Burn them. Put them yeah. in the in the pile room. In the yeah, exactly. 
right? Right, important evidence for this very serious job. I have a question. I'm assuming this is shared by my co-hosts. Of Philip has gone to like the bakery in the Adirondacks or wherever. Presumably, the coffee is good. There's a great pastry situation, and he just sees the like exfiltration team just nonchalantly throws the coffee and the pastry into the fucking dumpster. Like, what's wrong with you, Philip? I felt very angry about that. Like I, I... <laughs> really, I mean, it was weird, but I wasn't angry. Like, why would you be angry about that? I'm angry when that kid gets, is bleeding and he's dying. And no, he's that like, makes love sense to me. The... I'm not going through a fucking bear claw away. Jesus Christ. It might also be because I'm so hungry right now. <laughs> but Jen just rethinking about it make, is making me even angrier. No, it just like there had to be some spy meaning to that because otherwise, just like eat your goddamn pastry, man. Just eat it, like or bring it back to your kids who you've stranded to be hunted down by Larrick. Right? I yeah, exactly. I All don't right, know. This doesn't have an answer, and so it makes me mad. I mean, he probably didn't think it. We knew he wasn't going to eat it, so I'm sure he was. Why like, not? Right, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh... Uh, all right, I think we should move on. I'm getting nervous now. It's making me uncomfortable. <laughs> all right, well, we'll go to some comfort of some NYC uh, location. We've triggered her somehow, and I don't really know how. It's like, okay, so let's just go along with it and say, yes, it was totally and fucked up. The most he, fucked up right, thing in the right, episode. Right, right. <laughs> then he wasted that glazed donut and that fucking shitty black coffee from that shitty deli. He didn't even put any milk and sugar in it because he knew he was going to throw it away. I'm not... I'm give a shit about the coffee there's something <laughs> i know I'd, lo- I'd like a bear claw myself <laughs> no i really would i'd love to eat one i'm so hungry so also hungry. <laughs> okay we're gonna i really am. Gonna try to end this episode of the not quite great books podcast apparently okay i'd like to note some prospect park extreme prospect park situations in this in this episode of the americans so the drop where Stan puts the note in the KGB guy picks it back up is 100% where you're walking into Prospect Park from Grand Army Plaza. You swing a left. You go a little tunnel under the road right there. That's where those benches are. That's where that's happening. When there is then the picnic of the Jennings family, that is from the other side of that tunnel on like the northernmost big field in Prospect Park. So... I may, it's may have been a while since I lived there, but I still got it. Only we would give a shit about that because we're New Yorkers or, you know, right. Temporary. If this was a, right. If, if this was a podcast by people who never lived in New York before, you just wouldn't skip. We, we all skip over that. Correct. But I'm like looking at those scenes too, like analyzing it and trying to see where it is. Right. Exactly. Just like you. I've never been to Prospect Park. I like. Unbelievable. Wow. Unacceptable. <laughs> Best best park in New York. I believe it. Down. I just like really haven't spent a ton of time in Brooklyn. And I'm right now next to the biggest park, the biggest public park in New York City, which is much bigger than Central Park, Van Cortlandt Park. Van Cortlandt Park, I know because it's near Lee, uh, Lehman College. Yep. I used to swim there. Manhattan College is on Van Cortlandt Park. Oh, very nice. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very nice. I think that that wraps up gloss unless any, either of you have any other points to make about discarding pastries <laughs> no we've had enough of that we don't want to I'm, I'm again i'm really sorry <laughs> I, I didn't i didn't know i didn't mean to you know okay let's go to bar nostalgia for the unremembered 80s um 
John, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you think, what you thought of Est at the time that it was like around? Well, I mean, I was too young. I'm like 14, so I don't really know what Est is. No, but we want like your impressions of what it was. Yeah. Well, okay, I know this guy. Est eventually morphed into something called Landmark, right, which may still exist nowadays. And I had one of my uh, friends who will never listen to this, it doesn't matter, got sucked into it and invited me to a meeting of it once. And, you know, I remember I remember I made some joke like, don't worry, man, I won't forget my checkbook or stuff like that and didn't go. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, no, it was a self-help cult that fit perfectly in the culture of 80s consumer capitalism, right? Beautifully. Self-actualization, right? If you want it to happen, it can happen, right? That, that type of bullshit, you know? So I think it's interesting that they put this in this show, right? It's a very American kind of phony, made-up, religious kind of a thing that would never – you can never have est in the Soviet Union, right? Definitely not. Wouldn't make any sense. Wouldn't make any no. sense, right? Pe- right? You go to like your local cadre's political education course. That's what's called yeah. self-help. And- yeah. I mean people would be like, what, do I get extra bread by coming to this thing or an extra quart, you know? I'm talking about an extra. Quart, extra quart of milk. Sorry. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> John, you're correct. Um, eventually, Est became uh, Werner Earhart and Associates. Then it became the Forum. Then it became Landmark, and Landmark does still exist. Yeah, it's a racket. It's a total scam. Yeah. Maybe we should go to a Landmark session together, Absolutely. the three of us, as a research well, trip for the podcast. These cult things always involve sleep deprivation, right? It's always interesting. Well, you Somehow you need that to get in touch with yourself, right? You need to have all of your critical faculties diminished yeah. in order huh. to be open to this teaching, right? It's interesting, right? I'm sure there's some QR codes to give, give them some money after you've been sleep deprived in the 2022 version. All right, let's keep going in the bar nostalgia. Uh, we love a giant floppy disk. One, there are only three copies of Echo in the world on some good old floppy disks. And we see one of them in this episode and the general in like a line of the kind that like Madman was occasionally prone to as well of like the benefit of, you know, presentism or whatever. You know, the general is like, can you believe the future of the free world depends on like the code and language on this disk or whatever it is? He says something to that effect. John, what memories do you have of floppy disks in the 80s? Uh, playing Asteroids on my mm. friend's Commodore 64, <laughs> and you'd load it up. It looked exactly like that, and it was like, it would be like hitting keys. There's no joysticks back then, so you're hitting keys, right, to, to make the ship. The ship is a triangle, yeah. right? And it just fires these dots. And it was like, the asteroids look like rocks. And it was a really great game. I'm familiar with asteroids. I played, yeah. I think I'm like Game Boy in like the, yeah. the very early 90s. Um, and it was awesome, but you know, it took forever to load that fucking thing, you know, put that three by five in there, you know, it took forever <laughs> to load it up. You know, you have to do something else, you know, while it was loading, you know, and that's it. I'm, you know, I'm with you. I, yeah. I'm like a little bit younger, so I didn't play asteroids on a Commodore 64, but we did have like an Apple two E. And so yeah. I, that I played Oregon Trail on yeah. that came on a floppy disk, and also like Number Munchers, which it's a rough name. <laughs> wow! Um, so some... Asteroids. Asteroids was a good game. <laughs> a good game. Um, Seriously, it's pretty good. It's pretty I good. I do Asteroids. get ads on my phone for the like iPhone version of 
present-day asteroids. Um, and occasionally I've been tempted to download it. If I ever do, I, I'll make sure you two are the first. If I was at a bar and, we, and I was bored and it was an asteroids machine, I'd throw a buck in there. We could play some I asteroids. I wonder if there's some not, asteroids. Yeah. So there's a newly opened, like, barcade situation. Oh, yeah. It's not called barcade for licensing reasons uh, in Plattsburgh. I'll hear right. if they have asteroids. You know what? Are you, are you going to go that there? Will you report to yeah, us what, what video game? Only if let one of you comes up to Plattsburgh and goes with me. If I lived in Plattsburgh, I would definitely go to that place. Maybe I'll not like down a hundred... from, all, from Montreal. Okay. Well, well, we'll talk. We'll talk. I bet um, I can convince right. Abe and Miranda to like hang in Plattsburgh and play video games. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll have to see. <laughs> Things on Plattsburgh are not always well known for being open on Sundays. So. Wait, wait. What, what's in Montreal? APSA. Oh yeah. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> so John, John's on sabbatical. Like you know, he extra doesn't care about APSA. I, look, I didn't even know that. Okay, I should, at least I, I may never go to APSA, but I always usually kind of know roughly what part of the country it's in, right? Yeah. If I had known it was in Montreal, I might have actually tried to go to it in some way or another. I am not presenting at it, but going up for a night just to hang out with Danielle <laughs> and Rachel and Sid. <laughs> oh, they're going too. It is oh, the man. chair of of uh, the panel I'm on. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. So you're welcome to come, John. I mean, you're on. I know that like your water aerobics schedule is rigorous, but maybe uh, you can find a course zero. in Montreal. Yeah, I don't. Think <laughs> I'm not actually going to a panel or something while I'm up there. But anyway, we'll keep going with Bard nostalgia. As alluded to earlier, there's a Warren Beatty Rolling Stone cover, apparently the April 1st, 1982 issue, according to the internet. The song over the montage at the beginning is Twilight Zone by Golden Earring. John, are you familiar with the band The Golden Earring? You know, I, you know, I, I, held, I held my Shazam. I stopped the TV and I held my Shazam up because I knew I knew the song someplace. I just didn't know where. And I laughed when I heard the name Gold. It's like, you know, it's like one of these like, you know, second or third rate. 80s groups yeah. it's like appropriate you know what i mean good right song um, for the moment not totally listen to all yeah. the time i laughed right away i mean the music it makes me laugh in that show yeah, all the time, like, right? when, like, you know, when mm-hmm. they play the cure or they play roxy music or jazz or something that's music i'm actually going to listen to but when they play yeah. golden earring pass I mean, whoever picks this, the music is, does a fantastic yeah, job on that show. It's really great. It's so good. There's less so music right in season two than season one, though. I don't know if, Danielle, you've noticed I'm, that. It could be a money thing, right? Yeah, I'm sure it was. Oh, and yeah. then as it got like more critically acclaimed, FX was willing to shell out a little bit more for music rights is presumably what's happening here. Because the, the 80s-ness of the music will increase from here. I feel good oh. about that. There's a giant-ass Reagan portrait that Gad is hanging in his office. Like... This is, oh, is it a 24 by 36 situation or like 18 <laughs> by 24? I, I'm sorry. I'm a political theorist. Do you need something translated from ancient Greek? Like, why are you asking numbers on this podcast? <laughs> okay, here's my question. Was, Car- was Carter's picture... 18, 18 36, Was Carter's picture like a postage stamp size and then... Correct. You know, all, all the phallic, all the phallic, you know excellence of reagan you get to put up in a 24 by 36 or is that just a standard size the fbi makes them they got rid of all the carter ones they give you a reagan one you put it up no this is 1982 so it's not like they're reagan's just coming in and they've swept in this is gad being reagan is my hero he's the true american 
and we're printing a gigantic portrait. This is this is God being they gave me they gave me a twenty four by fourteen, and I requested a thirty six by twenty four, <laughs> and there it is, and I'm putting that one up there. Yeah, right? I just know that the, that one of those is bigger. Like that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> and I had a thought for the first time. You can tell me this is just too ridiculous. What? Is Gad supposed to be a tiny bit like styled in Reagan's image? There's something about the size of his suits that makes me feel like, mm. and like his hair that makes me feel like that's not so far off. Okay. Tough question for me because, you know, again, that actor plays the all American John Boy Walton, you know, who's from a Virginia family and, you know, good night, John Boy. And it's hilarious that he's an FBI agent now. So it's like, you know, red, white, and blue kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. He's a G man. He looks like a G man. And but so does Stan, you know, yeah, I mean, he's 100%. like, you know. Yeah. Agreed. Right? I mean, it's kind of what they look like, I, I guess, or what you imagine they might look like, right? In the FBI comics that Stan reads. Um, we've got some fashion choices to note, some more Sandy notes. Sandy's sweater at the beginning mm. is this baggy purple sweater with like embroidered flowers, like across the collar of it almost. It reads extremely 80s to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Sandy is always the epitome of 80s fashion, though. Yeah, and Elizabeth gets a moment of that as well at the very end, the, like, pleated brown pants that she's wearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The pleat in particular was is giving the 80s. is exactly yeah. right. 80s was a big pleated pleat period. Yeah. yeah. We, they, they, people went a little too hard on the pleats. Yeah. The yeah. 80s, and to make a call back to five minutes ago, khakis at APSA conferences, also extremely <laughs> pleated and unnecessarily <laughs> so. All right. Minor character of the week, Danielle, who we got? The exfiltration team, which I needed John to tell me that's who they were. Because I was like, who are these people just like looking at maps? I'm like, I know there's someone, but who are they? Um, played by Elena McGee and David Hess. They're they're looking at the map. They don't question Philip throwing the pastry out, which immediately makes them suspicious. But they are our minor characters of the week. Yeah, so they were the people who were presumably going to actually physically smuggle Jared out of the country. Yeah. yeah. They win minor character of the week because they don't get shot, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's my criteria. And we didn't even comment on, like, the fight scene of Larrick where he ends up getting shot is kind of fucking wild. Wild. How, how does Philip get the gun, though? So, He's a gun. So there's, a, there's an establishing shot of Larrick yeah. tucking Elizabeth's gun in his belt in the small oh, of his back. So yeah. Elizabeth, I think, knows this and keeps, like, kicking yeah. Larrick back into the car in hopes that Philip will get this gun. I think that's what's happening. gun. If <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> We love a oh, we do. We sure do. Who doesn't? Right. Who, who doesn't? Who it's doesn't? come to a head, John. Yes. Your favorite uh, part of the entire podcast. We're going to the cave. It's John's favorite segment yes. of this podcast. And he's absolutely thrilled that we have not coerced him, but generally, generously invited him to talk about Tocqueville and the cave. So, John, this, the floor is yours, my friend. <laughs> Wait, wait, that's it? Just talk about Tocqueville? You have no prompting thing, no reason why it's Tocqueville? You listen to the occasional... You have to do that for us. Yeah. How you've listened to the. You've listened to not the so I thought you could at least prompt me with some questions to direct the bullshit. I gotcha. How is Tocqueville connected to this episode? 
Oh, oh, well, thanks, Danielle. That's very <laughs> clarifying, really. Thanks a lot. Do you want to, you, need, you need a more specific question, John? Yeah, I'm exhausted. I'm hungry. I don't care. I hate this section. What do we, you are hungry. I'm talk about this. And I, yeah, I'm starving right now. I'm, I'm like really irritable and like I hate it anyway. Uh, okay, so, John. What does, that have to do, what does Tocqueville have to do with this? I want you to like tell us about some aspects of Tocqueville's like diagnosis analysis of American culture or political culture. And then raise the question of whether the Americans explores any of those similar themes. Does that do oh any God. better? No. M- remember when she says a couple episodes ago, he goes to her, uh, you know, do you do you like anything about being here? And she's like, yes, it's easier, but it's not better. Mm-hmm. She says, remember yeah. that? And sort of like, you know, uh, Tocqueville talking about the kind of ease of conformity in American society and how kind of that's like. Americans kind of adjust their souls in this kind of weakened direction to which they just surrender themselves to like mass culture. And that, that offends her a lot, right? Because there's no outside of it. And that's what scares Tocqueville. Tocqueville is talking about Jacksonian America, which for him is the beginning of American mass culture, really, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's, that's awful to him. That lacks the individualism of, uh, you know, aristocratic kind of uh, uh, distinction let's say that he represents or something, right? That was great. Um, That's exactly what we were looking all. for. Oh my God. Just cut that. <laughs> that the whole no. thing staying, you're like kvetching about it is a hundred percent staying. For me, the entry point to Tocqueville from the Americans is like the way in which all of the interpersonal dynamics are like, amplified and funneled through the like institutional dynamics right like that that the question of of american institutions which the show is raising but that that we can then sort of think that alongside and then against the like soviet institutions like there's something about like the institutional mess of it all that feels very um like connected to tocqueville's entry into american society yeah, he admires all the innovation in America, but it's too much, he thinks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, like, on the one hand, he's it's the future. Okay, so one way to think about it is Tocqueville wants to predict the future, and so he predicts that this thing he sees in America is going to overtake the globe, yeah. right, in some sense or another. And, like, the Russians think that's that's the case for their ideology, right? And they don't, you know, they think America's weak and soft, and they're destined to collapse on themselves, you know? One thing about Tocqueville that's weird, though, is before I got the CUNY, I didn't know that everybody... Um, the political theorists didn't like, I mean, like, I guess because all these people who were trained by Wolin um, were really into Tocqueville at UMass, where I went for yeah. my master's degree. So I didn't know when I got to CUNY, nobody liked Tocqueville. It was like people, like a couple of Americanists who huh. were conservative like Tocqueville <laughs> and like polit- political theorists would just skip over him and nobody taught him in their classes. And like at UMass, these Wolin professors would have him in the group with Marx and Hobbes yeah. and Locke and whatever. I mean, they make that is like the theorists who kind of genuinely taught Tocqueville, right, as social theorists. Who? Ude Mehta. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes sense. He's a Wolin student yeah. too, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So and that's where it comes from. That's all because he loved Tocqueville and that's why Nicholas Zenos and who taught me and then all these other people who, you know, are all really into him, right? And then and yeah. then when I got the, when, when I got the CUNY, nobody liked him. They thought he was like, 
simple or not interesting or not nuanced, like all these, these very, you know, and I was just trying to always tell people, no, you should check it out. It's like, he's good. You know, it's so interesting because like, I have two really good friends who write on Tocqueville, Jenny Forrestal and Jenny Akuta, mm-hmm. um, both write on Tocqueville and they write on Tocqueville from like two very different like spaces and perspectives. Yeah. I don't think that either is like in the lineage of a Wolin student, if I'm not mistaken. So I think like my perception has been like, oh, Tocqueville is in the mix in part because uh, Anne Norton, who is my chair, like right. she taught Tocqueville as a political theorist. Like that was, that was very right. much for her, which I wonder if that also comes from the Straussians. I wonder if the Straussians oh, are like, yeah. resistance to the Straussians. Yeah. That was the other place. Like it might yeah. also but, be like, but John, you, you thought Tocqueville was corny, right? Till I turned you on to it. Right. Then you, wasn't your impression of him pretty negative? A billion like, percent. Whatever? That's correct. Yeah. And then you, I mean, I don't want to say you liked him, but you enjoyed. Yes. You enjoyed, you found, in other words, you were able to see what I, what I liked about yes, him so much. Yes, definitely. Right? I could, and I'd just like to point out that despite yourself, yeah. John, here we are like six minutes into discussing yeah. Tocqueville, <laughs> including like the intricacies of his reception among different schools of political theorists. Right. So I don't want to hear any of your complaining about the game no, ever again. I'll talk to you about the, the talk, Tocqueville, but I'm not, not going to force Tocqueville onto the stupid TV show. I know you're texting, you're going, we got him talking about Tocqueville. Ha ha ha, we got him. Here's a, Wait, he said he didn't want to talk about it. We literally put it in the outline that you can see. It says, <laughs> Don has to do Tocqueville. We're not hiding it from you. This is on Front okay. Street, my dude. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, one thing I would say, though, is the whole, like, what, what, uh, what, okay, okay, what the arc of history is and, and what must be put to thwart that arc is something that Tocqueville's obsessed with, right? Yeah. And so are these characters. Like, we got to save the free world by doing this. We got to, you know, um, prevent this from happening we got to make sure this happens your kids belong to the cause they're not yours or you know it's like there's something meta about like using Tocqueville to think about the Americans in the like arc of history sense especially on that very point John like you know Claudia says at one point to Philip and Elizabeth in that conversation you know if we can get somebody into the CIA or FBI like that's that's it we've won and that's at least the third or fourth time where the mission that has been assigned to Philip and Elizabeth has been presented as the most important thing that has ever happened in the Cold War. You know, like you, you agents yeah. can like complete this mission and have made a greater impact on like our prospects as the Soviet Union than anybody else ever. So, yes, I think that's a good illustration of your point. John, you don't have to participate in this. You can just laugh at us. But Danielle and I have added a new mini segment where we even more forcibly jam together theory and the Americans. Danielle, can you explain this uh, this segment to John? Yeah, we call this segment theory ship. And it's literally where we either think about <clears throat> what theorists would be good for people to read in the show, characters, or what theorists they need <laughs> to read for their own education, right? Like, what either matches what they're doing or what they need to like put in their minds. Yeah. So John, Daniel and I are not so much on the, like let's ship characters in relationship together, um, don't care. but we will ship them with theorists and that shows you how depraved we actually are. 
Cool. So, wait, so wait, wait. So, which characters in the show should read which book? Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, this is good. This is a, this is a good idea. I like, this. all right, okay. Danielle, why don't you kick us off? We'll give John a few minutes, to, a minute to think. Yeah. So, I've got two for this week. I think that um, I really think Larrick needs to read some Arendt. We need like he needs to like dig into origins of totalitarianism or something like, <laughs> like, like. Come on, my dude. Like, he's dead now, but you know. He needed to read some Arendt. Um, and last week, I think I said that Martha needed some some bell hooks, but I think we need to give some of that to Paige too. Her like point about, oh, well, like theory of it and the practice of it, like doing it, like there's something important about doing it. Like the black feminists are the best at thinking through the importance of experience. And I think it would just help Paige's overall like approach to the world to get some of that knowledge. And correct some of Paige's self-importance of her and Pastor Tim. Yeah. Exactly. I would like to theory ship Walter Benjamin and on the concept of history to Elizabeth because Benjamin is the person who understands and is concerned about the very conundrum the two of you talked so excellently about 17 hours ago. And that (laughs) is that the marks like that so many leftists don't see the kind of potentially or actually like religious structure of certain strands of Marxism. And Benjamin's whole thing in the concept of history is like, we have to have a Marxist materialism that also has some mysticism, some religion brought into it. And so I think Elizabeth really needs to read on the concept of history. John, do you want to offer any theory shifts? Yeah, let's give uh, uh, Arcadi Max Weber. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> tell us more. Uh, just, you know, to understand the bureaucratic mindset, the kind of way how which structures impact an individual. and that, Just to give him a kind of outside of his own responsibilities within the, within the, you know, the framework that he works, right? I love it. Um, John, and how really? It's, in- and, how it's, and, how it's ser- and how it serves the state, right? He might understand his own apparatchnik mm. status better. Mm-hmm. Look at that. John fully inhabiting theory shipping. We we love to see it. Time for the most important, from your two perspectives, minutes of the show. The very final thing we will do in this extremely long episode, and that is Yankees Corner. And John and I negotiated that there's an extra 30 seconds of Yankees Corner because I was mean to him about the cave. So you two will have a full 120 seconds on the clock for Yankees Corner, starting in two, one, go. Yankees Corner has descended into the darkness, just like season two of the American <laughs> has. <laughs> it's been a rough, it's been a rough go. I have faith, but like, it's been a real rough go of it. Where are you on this? I mean, I kind of we're always wondering all along. I asked you before, whenever we talk last, if we think that they're a paper tiger or not. And it's like I look at the very better teams and they're beating them. So yeah. they remind me of the 2001 Mariners that won all these games. And like when it came down to the crunch time, they were not as good as the best teams. I So I wonder. Yeah, I think the jury's still out on that because the last month is just like injury central, right? Like everyone is hurt. Everyone is pretending not to be hurt. People are out like it's just it's all it's like a perfect storm of this. But I don't I like the jury's out. We like who knows? I don't think the Blue Jays are a better team. I just think we like forgot how to hit. 
Well, no, I mean, I'm worried about the Astros. I think the Astros yes, are better. I think the Astros are a better team, and I think I don't, but I don't think that the better. the Dodgers are a better team. I think the Dodgers have a lot of the same problems that we do. We got to get through the Astros to get to the Dodgers, though. That's the problem. Yeah, we well, we got to. You got thirty well, seconds left. We have to stop losing so that we can get through to the Astros. Though so, uh, we're going to make the playoffs, <laughs> like that's fine. But. Yeah, if you're gonna have a swoon, now's the time to do it, not September. This is what I keep saying, and my mom calls me every night. She's like, Dan, I can't. I'm like, No, I know. I I, I can't I can't listen to John Sterling be disappointed on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> John Sterling's is the eighty four year old announcer on the Yankees who basically it's a fly ball to left field and he's like, It's gone. No, wait, 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 no, it's not. <laughs> what a great way to end our hundred and twenty seconds of Yankees corner. <laughs> where I'm here for both of you talking as if you are members of the Yankees baseball team. <laughs> we want there's to a lot of there's a lot of weeing happening in the last uh, two and a half minutes of. Uh, My mom I'm not going to I'm not going to say like. Well, that's great. I don't, I never wee. No, she does that. I don't. No, do that. John, you also had at least one, I believe, two wees in there. I'm never going to really? be like uh, we. Know. You know, we were on the Americans, and you know we're. We're, we're, we're actively this moment hanging out with Lev Gorn. In the future, when we go to his Hamlet production, we will. But like we in the present are not members of the Americans. All right. What a journey it's been. It's been such a I was just looking at the, the outline like, did we get through everything? Uh, yeah, it's more been or less. Such a journey. We're, we're troopers. John and I are starving, but we made it through this, uh, this amazing episode. So thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Up next, we will have a little bit of a look back on season two, maybe a meta episode. And then we'll be back with Americans uh, season three, episode one, X-Men, which I feel like I've gotten some tidbits of (laughs) in this discussion. Keller, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that lengthy soliloquy on Tocqueville. Yeah, truly, I'm touched. I'm touched that you would do that for us. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. Thank you in general for just good being here and, and uh, being excited uh, about this show with us. And uh, thank you all for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books. The TV podcast. for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Bless FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.